we're going to partake in, in communion together. If, if you didn't receive one as you came in, please raise your hand and the ushers will, will get one to you uh, there. Today, as, as Paul writes these words, there's, there's a crucial message that, that we need to understand there's an understanding and comprehension that I feel sometimes people miss when they come to the Scriptures. And it revolves around the, the message of salvation. I, I'll be honest with you, as I, as I came to this passage, I was, I was really excited. I, I, I saw it and I'm like, oh, I, I've wanted to study this, this passage in depth so many times. And, and I looked forward to this week because there were so few appointments and engagements. I'm like, I will have just tremendous amounts of time to, to dive into this passage. And truth be told, I think I had fewer hours in my office this week than, um, uh, than I would have desired. But as I worked through this, it was almost as if the Lord was, was saying, you know, Jen, don't make it complicated. And I think sometimes we, we come to the topic of salvation. We come to the work of Jesus Christ. And we complicate things. So this morning's message is going to be very clear, uncomplicated, but very direct. Paul is one who does not mince words when it comes to this topic, and I love that about Paul. I have titled this morning's message, Rubbish, Joy Stealers. And, and when we come to that word rubbish, it it's kind of has in its in our minds, the idea of trash, something that just we, we get rid of. But as Paul comes, he has a much more intense picture in mind of rubbish. The tone and emphasis in which he uses um, is intense. Rubbish is something that has absolute worthless value. And, and sometimes around this time of year, we, we give rubbish. Let's be honest. We've, we've all probably received that gift that we may consider rubbish. Or maybe even given some of those gifts. But it goes beyond that. As Paul is expressing this, it's something that is no longer desired. It's almost repugnant to the individual. It, it carries a better word, and it could be even translated dung or waste matter. 
Keep that in mind. As we look this morning at the things in which Paul will regard as rubbish. I'd encourage you to turn to chapter 3. We embark on a new chapter in Philippians. Paul begins this way, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Do you know that that phrase is only found in the book of Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in a spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's quite a pedigree there, isn't it? He goes on. But, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And you wonder why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. I love this passage. It's, it's, it's one of those that, that makes my heart weep when I understand it and rejoice all at the same time. Paul begins by saying, finally. By the way, this is not his rendition of coming to the end of a sermon or anything like that, okay? He's not doing that. He still has two chapters to go. He's saying, finally, it's, it's like a climatic point for him. It's, it's the idea that everything he's been saying, it, it comes to this. He's talked about the circumstances and how we view hardships and trials. He's told us to, to have a mind of Christ. 
And what he's engaging in here is he shares the gospel and rejoices with these Philippians. It comes to that climatic moment in emphasis that you and I are to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So often, we rejoice in other things, don't we? We find it easy to to rejoice in the circumstances around us. And in case you missed it, that is an imperative. If you have to go back to the English class, an imperative is a command. It is something you and I are to do. You and I are to rejoice in the Lord. He's not summing things up. He is, he is building in on this, this thought, this concept of what Jesus Christ has done, who Jesus Christ is. But so often as believers, we are tempted to find our joys in other things, aren't we? And those things are rubbish. We're tempted to find them in, in circumstances of good and happiness. We look forward sometimes to Christmas because we feel there's more merriment, right? Which will make us more joyful. It can, if it's in the Lord. Sometimes we're tempted to find our joy, our rejoicing in achievements. It was interesting this morning as I sat with my son talking, I looked on my wall and I saw frames of achievements. I thought about the message and how often I have been tempted to look at that wall with the frames and find some type of a joy in pieces of paper that makes statements of accomplishments. Being tempted to look at some semblance of a pedigree. Sometimes as believers, there is the temptation to find our joy in accolades. Those that, that say wonderful things and praises about what we do, who we are, how we act. And we strive and long for that. Or foolishly, we find joy in the confidence as we look in the mirror at who we are or what we've become and place our confidence there. What a shame. And Paul gives the imperative 
Rejoice in the Lord. In Him, in His work, in who He is, what He has done. And Paul says, this is a safeguard for you. What he's writing to us today is a safeguard against those legalistic joy stealers. And Paul has some harsh words about these folks. I I find it interesting sometimes, the English language, when we come to translations, we are so good at making things politically correct. This morning, I'm not going to be politically correct. Because Paul had no intention of being politically correct when it came to this. He calls them dogs, evil workers. And I know we have in our translation the circumcision. The word that Paul actually uses in emphasis is mutilators of the flesh. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? In fact, you go to Galatians and he has something to say about those guys. You can look that up later. First one, dogs. He, he looks at these people, these, these ones who hold to legalism, and he calls them dogs, those who are encouraging you and I to a life of emptiness. These aren't the cute little puppies. I mean, we just had little Labrador puppies. That's not what this is talking about. Those are cuddly and warm and fuzzy and loving. When, when, when Paul has dogs in mind, he's talking about the flea-infested, mangy, sickness-carrying, ravenous dogs that would roam the streets. They were aggressive. Thin, starved themselves, had a pack mentality, out for blood. They offered everything, but in truth, they were starving themselves and empty. And the lifestyle and rules and things in which they said offered something. And when you hold on to it was nothing. Left you just as starved as they were. Evil workers. It's quite interesting that he would define these individuals as evil workers. The ones that would promote and push and, and encourage people to work. I'm not talking about get a job. I'm talking about working to attain God's favor. The things in which they would do would somehow make God go, Oh, I love you so much. That somehow what they would work for and do would somehow wipe out all the sin and evil that they had done in their lives and their hearts and their minds. 
They push you towards works. I'm not saying that good works are a bad thing. I'm saying in the context of salvation and in attaining God's favor, it's evil. I appreciate what the prophet Isaiah had to say about good works. Isaiah says this. Well, it's right here. For all of us become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy, a filthy garment. Keep that up there for just a moment. Once again, our English translations are so nice and clean. One who is unclean was one who was going through their menstrual cycle. And the filthy garment was a bloody stained menstrual cloth. And he's saying to the people, all of your righteous acts, your righteous deeds are like this. I have a lot of rags in my shop. I use my rags for quite a few things. I will even grab a rag that I've been painting with and all of that. I'll grab it, blow my nose and all that. It's true. I won't pick up that cloth. The idea that everything good that we could do somehow in the eyes of a pure, holy, righteous God would impress him? No doubt, as Paul is thinking about these evil workers, those ones that would push for works, this concept comes up. Yet they push for it. And unfortunately, as they tell you, you have to do this, you have to do that to earn God's favor, all one feels over and over again is shame. Go to the next slide there. You see, our works are stained with sin. And you may strive day in and day out, but there will be another sin. There'll be one more rung on the ladder that you have to achieve. And it just brings more shame. And then these mutilators. These ones that are saying that what Jesus Christ did at Calvary, and we're going to remember that in just a moment, but what he did at Calvary was not enough. The scourging that he would take for you and I, his body beaten and broken, as he hung on the cross, dying a sinner's death, that wasn't enough, they said. 
you need to do this. Let me just say, any teaching, any doctrine that you ever hear, that tries or attempts to add to what Jesus Christ did at Calvary, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, anything that tries to detract from what Jesus Christ did is false doctrine. And it only comes from the pits of hell. Rubbish. But Paul had something to say. He goes, you want to you look at these things? Let's compare pedigrees. What an amazing man that God would use like Paul to make this statement. For those that would be tempted to look at their pedigrees, tempted to be looking at their achievements, their good deeds, well, Paul had his list. It's an impressive list, circumcised on the eighth day. No one could go back and do that, especially a Gentile. Born into Israel. He wasn't, he wasn't Jewish by conversion. He didn't come in. He was born in Israel. Not only that, he was born in Benjamin, a prestigious tribe. Honorable. Hebrew of Hebrews. Best of the best. It's interesting. No one could actually refute these things. As they looked at Paul, they would see, in fact, he was so much so, he became a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the ones who held to the law. Everything was about the law. The external. And he observed the law. In fact, so much so that he was rising in the ranks. He was so zealous in his pursuit of it when he heard about these Christians, these Christ followers. He went before the, the leaders and said, listen, give me the permission and I will go and wipe them out. And he persecuted the church. Not only would he stand for the law, but he would go and persecute those people who spoke of grace. Blameless. This is quite a man. Notice Paul does not use the word sinless, but blameless. In regard to the external things of the law, there could not be found blame. I'll be honest, it's impressive even today. It would have been very impressive then. Any Jew reading this would go, well, I have no hope. Any Gentile would be like, I, pfft, not even a chance. We look at this. And Paul, as he writes this, says, All that righteousness is like filthy rags. Of no value. 
He counts all that as loss. In fact, he's emphatic about this. Those things hold no value. I I thought of what I could illustrate with, and the only thing that kept coming to mind was an opportunity. I was on an ambulance, and um, I learned a lesson about something called explosive diarrhea. Um, You don't want to be around it. And and as I was in the back of the ambulance, um, well, I, I was covered in it. When I yeah, bleh, yeah, exactly, yeah, that's the way I felt too. Um, as as I got to the hospital, <laughs> all the nurses felt that way too, and and they offered a change of clothing for me. How nice is that? <laughs> um, I didn't have to think about that. I I gladly exchanged those clothes with good riddance and embraced the new clothing they gave me. Never once have I desired those clothes back. I count it gladly as loss for what I attained. And and I hope that gives just a little picture of what Paul is trying to say here. All those good deeds, all those works, everything that he had attained before, it was a loss. It It was rubbish. There was no desire for it. He said good riddance because there was something far greater, far surpassing. What could be that Jesus. It was Jesus, the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. One day, as Paul is is walking or going down the road on the way to Damascus, he meets Jesus. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And in that moment, Paul understood. The rubbish of all that he had been attaining didn't stack up to the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Nothing could. Church, there is nothing in your life, there is nothing in this life, past, present, or to come, that can come remotely close with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that all of Paul's life, he had strived for and and, and sought after religion, a list of, of do's and don'ts. A checklist. And as soon as he would get close to the end, there would be more checkboxes. As he would get to one level, there would be more to come. And he had been pursuing religion. As he would attain one level of righteousness in his own mind, he would find that he fell short finding fault. But then, after pursuing religion, Paul is introduced to relationship. Relationship. 
You see, in religion, we will never find joy. We'll find shame, we'll find emptiness, we'll find regret. But in relationship, we can rejoice because of the surpassing value, as Paul writes, of knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing that's intimacy, that's relationship. Jesus says, Come. And you and I, as we come, all of God's favor, all of God's grace, His mercy, His love, wrapped up in the relationship that He offers through His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 9 depicts beautifully the doctrine of what theologians call imputation. Simply this. It's where all of your sin. Try to grasp that for just a moment. All your sin. All your guilt, shame, all of that is taken and placed on Jesus Christ. And in return, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is placed on you and me. I want to read verses 8 through 11 again, this time in the New Living Translation. I love the way it states it. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Yes, everything else is worthless when we compare with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, not works. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. The relationship brings life. Religion just, it crushes, it destroys It detracts. Oh, but relationship, wow. What a God. What a Savior. There's no joy in religion. 
There may be a sense of accomplishment. There may be a sense of pride, arrogance. But there's no joy. God calls us into a relationship. And therefore, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. What he has done. We place our faith, not in what we do, but in his finished work at Calvary. His death, his burial, his resurrection. It was complete. The final words of Jesus Christ on the cross was not, I'm finished, but it is finished, the work of salvation. And because of that, we rejoice. I rejoice. Today as we come to our time of communion, thank you. We come this morning partaking of communion, not having to wonder if we've achieved enough because you haven't I haven't we can't earn that favor rather this morning we come to communion in remembrance remembering what he did going there And we remember that it was because of his body broken. His body at Calvary was broken so you and I could be whole. Do you understand that? Complete. Made right before God. And he left us communion to remember that. Communion isn't a time where we go and say, have I earned enough yet? If I were to die today, have I earned enough favor before God? I will tell you, most communion days, I would come and be really depressed. Looking at my own heart or minds or thoughts or actions from the previous day, the previous week, definitely the previous month and year. But we come and we rejoice. It is time of thanksgiving. And we remember his work. And Jesus would want us, a, a, give us a way to remember what he did. That night with the disciples, he, he said, I want you to do this. They didn't understand it, but they would. And he took the bread and he broke it. Because this is a picture of my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, Remember. 
He asked a blessing on it, and I'd like to do that right now.